2: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. We're back, back for the new season, and we'll be here for the next 37 weeks of domestic and other rugby action. Joining me in the studio to look back at the weekend's action is World Cup winner Maggie Alfonsi. Over the course of the next hour, we'll be speaking to Exeter Chiefs Gareth Steenson about the Premiership. We'll be talking about the expanded Pro 14 with the former South African international Tinas Delport. And we'll be talking to Lee Radford, the head coach of the newly crowned Rugby League Challenge Cup champions Hull FC. On with the show. Maggie, Women's World Cup has just completed. I think we can say it was a success without any doubt at all. We how long were you out there
3: for?
2: Well, I went out officially on the Thursday uh, evening and what, just for the final. Just for the final. Yeah, so we filmed all of the all well all of the shows from our London studios and yeah, went out for the final. Obviously the the big priority was England getting to the final. And unfortunately, England didn't get the result they wanted. But look, what an atmosphere. It was a fantastic game and great viewing figures as well, 2.65 million. So, yeah, even though I went out a little bit later, I still got to experience what what was a great final. The World Cups
1: have progressively, in my opinion, and I've seen all of them, have got better each time. Do you think that was the case this tournament to the previous one,
2: most definitely, yeah. So look, I, I went to my first World Cup in 2006 out in Canada, and um, there was there wasn't very many people watching, and it was shown live on Sky Sports back then, um, and so the VM figures would have been quite minimal. Then back in 2010, that got better. We had a bigger crowd because it was at home, so we had 14,000 people in the stadium. But I think 2014 got a little bit better again because it was was France. But 2017 has been phenomenal. I think just because this this year in particular has been very focused on women's sport. Mm. And we've seen the women's cricket side. We've seen the women's football side all do really well. And I think we've just been caught up in that momentum where people just want to watch women's sport. And um, I think the rugby final just highlighted the fact that it wasn't really about women playing. It was just a great game which people could watch.
1: Well, I... Was in the stoop in the crowd uh, 2010, and unfortunately, the same result the Kiwis uh, managed to uh, beat England. England had a really good first half, and then the second half, to be fair, they weren't really in the game, they couldn't get any ball. Was there any specific reason for that other than the Kiwis just playing, um, you know, with an extra bit of momentum, extra bit of firepower?
2: Brian, look, you've played against the Kiwis before and they have this ultimate belief and um, dogged attitude that they're never going to lose. And that's what happened in the second half against England. Look, England came out in the first half, were were brilliant. In the first 20 minutes, they were in, in, in front. And um, the, towards the end of the first half, New Zealand scored a try. I think that's where it started to change. So The score at halftime was 17-10. And then in the second half, New Zealand came back out, scored the first try. And It
1: was quite early as well, wasn't it? It was,
2: yeah. It was literally like three, three minutes into the second half. And that really changed, I think, the swing of where the game was going. Because I think England had sort of the... the the advantage I guess and then all of a sudden New Zealand just took over and it was really hard to see New Zealand ever falling back really and look New Zealand don't get as much money as the English team gets and um, they've won the World Cup four times already but to know that they 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 missed out in 2014 and they also lost to England in June out in New Zealand so I think they've got that anger inside them that they felt like they were never going to lose because they didn't want to go through that pain again.
1: Well, you mentioned uh, payment and obviously that's caused a bit of a ruction, and people have been jumping on the bandwagon, giving the RFU a lot of stick. Let's get this right. Let's present the facts as they are. The RFU have put a a decent amount of money into a new uh, domestic structure. They've got the Women's Super League with 10 uh, teams. So they're financing that. They also finance the uh, full-time contracts, which... Uh, Order the unions don't, but they've decided, as they did after the last World Cup, to focus on sevens and the various aspects of that, and that means fewer contracts are going to fifteens players. I don't think they're spending less money; I think they're spending more. But the uh, emphasis has, has changed. Now, I am firmly of the opinion, and I was last time, that this is a mistake, and if anything, you should uh, you should try and be much more balanced in terms of of where you put the resources, and I'm not sure it will work as it didn't, in my opinion, last time. What what do you think?
2: Well, look, um, first I have to agree with you with the fact that the RFU do put a large amount of money in, and in comparison to all the other uh, nations out there, England are probably the most well-funded rugby side in the women's game. I think going forward, I fully agree with you again, I think there needs to be a balance between sevens and fifteens. Next year it's the Sevens Rugby World Cup in San Francisco, also the Commonwealth Games out in Australia. So there's a big priority there, yes, but what we don't want is our fifteens game to go backwards. They've reached the final, which is brilliant, but they didn't win it, so that's not acceptable. And really, they as a team, and as a union, would, would have wanted to obviously win that World Cup, And the next four year cycle is going to be incredibly pivotal. You want to ensure that you do really well in the Six Nations again. You want to make sure that you beat New Zealand several times over that period of four years. And you want your players to get better. So the next World Cup, this is a really good side. Because at the moment, teams like France, USA are catching up. And New Zealand will always be a team to beat. But you don't want any other teams to sort of get that same level of advantage.
1: Because I remember going to the Six Nations immediately after. Uh, the last World Cup, and I'm sure a lot of other people decided to give it a go, and I probably, like them, was saying, where's, em- where's Emily's Scott? Where-, where are these players, where are the ones I've watched? And they, actually, they were all sat in the stand, just down from me, you know, watching, and you knew there were uh, seven players concentrating on sevens, because they all had tans, and they looked really good. But uh, because of that, and people were saying, well, it gives other players a chance, but In terms of um, aspiration and so on, people want, I think the big names, and and these are big names temporarily, you need those there. That's that's, that's my thing. I would say when you get the New Zealand CEO saying that they can't uh, finance a full time pro game in New Zealand, one point I would make is that if England did concentrate as well on the 15s, it would force other unions to try and catch up because you're playing pro against semi-pro or even amateur. And, you know, if England carry on winning the Six Nations quite easily, well, other sides will have to catch up. And I don't believe with the amount of money you're talking about that it would be difficult if they prioritise that in the other unions to get themselves at least to a semi-pro standard. And certainly, you know, for for the Irish and the French, uh, without doubt, I'm sure they have the money and can find the money. To, uh, to finance a pro game well, what you know, however large or small they want to the money's there
2: oh, I agree yeah I mean look the fact that the RFU England announced uh, these professional contracts way back in September I think the rugby world was really impressed by that because it really highlighted the fact that there's a lot of investment in the women's game and there still is but you're right to almost finish a World Cup and then only renew seventeen contracts for sevens players. It almost makes other unions think: Do we want to keep pushing, or do we continue where we're at? Yeah. Um, look, what you do want is countries like England to push other nations to have to invest because we want to see. I want to see New Zealand get better. I want to see France get better, and and USA. You want to see a competitive World Cup, not yeah. just two teams always reach the final, being England and New Zealand.
1: Well, uh, we like to take questions in the uh, first part that is show and we've got one from David Grosvenor who's saying, should we drop the women's name from the description and just call it rugby? Now, I think he's alluding to the fact that that might in some way suggest it's inferior, but I was speaking to a, a good friend of mine, and he's probably the country's leading sponsorship expert, Tim Crow from Synergy, and he was saying it's vital, in his opinion, for the women's game to carve out its own niche and he's in favour of an umbrella tournament and combining the World Cups because then you've got uh, the you've got a package to put to the sponsors. It's not get one buy one get one free, but you've got something else there, and that would actually fill in the inconvenient blanks, you know, in the midweek games when the knockout stages come, and it would give a fraternal. Um, feel to, to the whole thing. What what do you think about playing them together?
2: Well, the Sevens Rugby World Cup works like that. So the men's and the women's run over the same period. So um, uh, I think it was three days last World Cup, and I'm not quite sure this time around. I think it might be two days. But it works because it's, it's a shorter format. Yeah. Um, with the 15s World Cup, it'll be interesting because the Men's World Cup goes a lot longer than the Women's. The Women's is only over 17 days yeah. and the Men's obviously is significantly longer. And the question is will you be able to, would you run the Women's Tournament at the beginning of the Men's Tournament? Would you run it at the end? Would you run it in the middle? Would you run it over the same duration? And you've got to remember, a lot of the Women players um, are amateurs. So they won't be able to take that time off work. Well, I think you'd run it over the, the, in, at the same time, you'd just start it later.
1: Uh, and you could fit it in that way. And... Uh, Tim was saying to me that his company actually get more inquiries about how to uh, target women consumers than they do. You know, they said that the men consumer market is fairly standard now. Everyone knows what's going on, but there is definitely interest there. But what he said to me was you need to be flexible about this. For example, quite a lot of people just say, well, how much cash are you going to give us? And, you know, when you're starting off trying to establish your brand, so to speak, you can do contra deals for them to uh, do activation campaigns. And they don't necessarily give you money, but they will promote it heavily, Mm. uh, which gives it the visibility, which is very much what you need at the start of, of brand, you know, brand establishment.
2: Yeah, I think I think you have to be definitely flexible and I have to say with a lot of sponsors they have to think differently about how they target people I think that's it's not one size fits all Um, especially when you look at Women's sport, I guess, to an extent, a lot of to be fair, a lot more men watch women's rugby um, than women, and we want to try and get more women to watch uh, women's rugby. That's that's a big thing across all sports, I guess. And I guess, how do we target them? Because you've got all the big sponsors who are brilliant sponsors, and they do all target most of the the male population. But how do we get more women on board? And Little things like, I guess, you pick a different sort of um, way of p- advertising your product. I um, can't really think of an example. Well, but you what, the, ways the, the better be
1: way f- for me is this. People are motivated by self-interest and the top 30 women's weekly magazines who have a combined circulation or of really about 8 million, very rarely is women's sport put in there at all. And if it is, it's done with a human interest angle or it's done with a fashion angle or a celebrity angle. But if you get the sponsors who put their money into the advertising which helps the magazines, if you can get them involved, and that's why I'm talking about activation campaigns, then it's in the magazine's interest because the people they make their money off will demand that they start featuring this. So you you do it in that way rather than, because there's only so many times you can go to people and say, oh look, do the right thing, do the morally right thing and help, you know, as, as established this game, if they've got a direct financial interest and their sponsors are demanding it, that's m- going to work much more often.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, if you get more, um, if you attract a different market or, you know, you start to activate another area of the population, you're going to get a greater investment back. It's almost obvious. And you kind of think to yourself, in a way, why don't sponsors try and activate in different ways to engage different people um and we are starting to see that now we are starting to see sponsors think a little bit out of the box
1: talking to tim he said to me it's not necessarily the sponsors because they as i said they get a majority of inquiries about how uh, brands can come in and target women consumers it's the fact that a lot of the rights holders simply say how much cash you're going to give us and they're not flexible enough they're not inventive enough uh, to understand that you can do things that are very valuable for the brand without actually taking cash because they're only seeing the pounds and pence and how much we're paying out and so on. So you know, I think with a, if the flexibility and the imagination and ambition is there, I'm sure that that can be ramped up. But if you have something like an umbrella tournament of the Men's World Cup under which you can do that, then it's going to be much easier. That's going to be a big step for World Rugby. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's on the cards certainly for the next one, and maybe the one after, but uh, I think that's something to work towards. Okay, we're now going to look at the Premiership. Everyone was keenly anticipating this because people's appetite was whetted by the Lions in summer and seeing a lot of the Premiership stars doing very well uh, against the Kiwis. And... It didn't disappoint, did it, 50 tries?
2: Oh, it was absolutely uh, amazing to watch. Watching from Friday, I mean, the Friday night fixture um, with Gloucester and Exeter. Who would have thought Exeter would have gone down? And that was a tightly uh, fought competition or fought game. And then the rest of the weekend, um, it it was just great to watch. And we always knew it was going to be a good round one uh, of the Premiership. Yeah, because look, I mean, I know obviously a lot of the key players would have been rested following um, an intense summer. But you've got new signings, you've got different management, you've got London Irish back in the Premiership trying to prove a point. It's all, and, the, and round one is always exciting because yeah, people are a little bit rusty, so you get a lot more tries and the defence aren't always um, accurate with their tackles. But 50 tries, you kind of do question again, like is defence being quite poor or has the attack just been very good in all these teams? Well, that's an interesting
1: point, Maggie, and we'll be able to now speak to someone who can give a first-hand point of view because they are now going to speak to Gareth Steenson, the Exeter Chiefs fly-half. They're the current champions and he's celebrating 10 years at the club. In fact, it's his testimonial uh, year. Gareth, are you there?
4: Yes, I am. How are you doing?
1: I'm OK. Testimonial year, big year for you. Um, lots of events planned?
4: Yes, we have, yeah. We've just actually come off the back of a really successful weekend where I had the old championship. They got one promotion playing against the Classic Lions a couple of weeks ago, so that was really good fun. And um, we're doing um, some good uh, events for for our charities and the Macmillan Nurses and the Exeter Foundation. So there isn't a lot of events, but just enough to just hopefully keep everybody entertained.
1: Well, Maggie and I were talking about the fact that uh, 50 tries were scored over the weekend, and we were wondering whether that was a product of... Uh, the first game and defences not being as accurate as they should and will be, or whether it was the fact that teams are playing with expanded ambition and that they maybe the uh, defensive systems are now being worked out. And uh, that's obviously good for spectators. It's good for teams who with ball in hand. What do, what do you think?
4: I think it's just the, uh, the mentality of teams, really, to go out and score points. Obviously, at the start of the year, the weather t- it tends to be a lot better as well and teams can go out and express themselves. Um, I'm not sure about defences being a little bit, maybe not on it, I think a lot of time and effort does go into defences, but like you say, guys have done a lot of analysis work on opposition teams, and guys have played against each other numerous times now, and you kind of, sometimes you kind of know what to expect with some teams, and I think it's just the, the mindset the, that there is in the Premiership at the minute, obviously, with ourselves and Wolves getting to the final last year, were two teams that scored a lot of tries, and I think potentially maybe other teams have looked at that and um, there's definitely a lot of a lot of quality attacking teams out there now. Like
1: all cliches, there's an element of truth in this one, that, that it's harder to defend uh, a title than to win one. I'm not entirely sure about that, but it does bring different challenges. Have you done anything specific um, at Exeter to address that particular issue?
4: No, we haven't done anything specific. We have talked about it. We have um you know, it's completely brand new for us, which is which is a great challenge. We've always talked to, as a club about being a progressive club, and now we're in a completely brand new situation, which is one that we, you know, we either have to stand up and be counted for, or fall by the wayside. And we we want to be a club that keeps progressing. Obviously, um, we don't think we're the finished article by any means, and lift the trophy once. You know, we don't want to just have it once and not happen again. So we we really much. We're very much talking about going out and being the aggressors um, and that's the way we've got to approach it. We don't really want to be looking at teams coming at us. We want to be going at teams.
2: And Gareth, hi, Maggie here. How are you doing, Maggie? Um, look, obviously a big loss to, to Gloucester. Well, not a big loss, a narrow loss to Gloucester. Um, your next game is against London Irish. What do you guys and the boys have to do to, to turn that, I guess, performance around and make sure that you finish that you know, the 80 minutes?
4: No, look I think after being in today and we've reviewed the game there was a lot of positives to be taken out of the game. There's a couple of things that didn't go our way in the game which was part you know part of our own doing um, you know but we, we don't t- generally tend to start very well and going away to Gloucester um, it's always a tough fixture for us and we've always had really good games against them so and they're definitely a strong side as well. So look we, we've taken the positives out of it. Um, you know we'll just get ourselves ready for another big challenge obviously London irish pulled off a fantastic performance at the weekend a great result for them and their confidence is going to be high and they're going to come to us with absolutely no fear um, and it's another good challenge for us we just want to make sure that we get our A game right um, and we're really looking forward to being back at Sandy Park as well and in front of our home support as well so it's a really exciting week for us all
2: And Gareth I have to ask you this question you got a yellow card a- against Gloucester
4: Yes. Yeah.
2: you've had time to look back at it do you think that was the right call that was a fair call
4: Oh yeah, I think with the new laws and everything there. I think for me, I've I've just got to try and get in the air. Um, it's one of those ones you kind of get caught in that sort of no man's land a little bit. But I once I've stayed in the ground, I'm sort of putting myself in in a dodgy position. Um, but that's just a lesson for me. I kind of got myself caught in two two minds rather to go for the ball or pull out. And um, unfortunately for me, I just didn't win the the aerial battle and. Uh, you know, I think when you look back on it, I think the way the laws are now, you think that that was the right decision.
1: I don't know if you managed to see many of the other games, you know, over the opening weekend, but uh, who do you think are going to be uh, challenging you in terms of, you know, winning the title again? Are th- is it the same old suspects?
4: Oh, look, there's the attacking qualities, like you were talking about earlier, is right across the board. And teams have recruited very well. I think Newcastle definitely put in a very very good performance but like I said it's not unusual because they were doing that last year you know and um, um, you obviously you've got Saracens and wasps putting in really big performances as well which were again you know people would stand up and look at um, but again it's only the first week and it's hard to really gauge in the first couple of first week of things I think whenever you get about six seven weeks into it and uh, after the first block of games you might start seeing things a little bit differently but you um, like you say, I think everybody on their day can win in the Premiership, which makes the competition really exciting.
1: Well, that's a, a theme that was echoed by nearly every coach who gave post-match interviews. They were stressing that this time round, they feel because of the recruitment and the stage of developments that any team can beat any team. How, therefore, do you think um, you'll approach the uh, the periods when, when teams are losing players to internationals? Is there anything... That you do, you do differently to try and uh, take advantage of that.
4: Oh, um, I think you can't really look that far ahead. If I'm yeah. being honest, um, you can't really tell with what happens with international squads these days, especially. You know, we could be. You know, we, we're in a different place. We might we might lose a few more players ourselves this year, which yeah. hopefully we do because it would be great for the club that we've progressed and, and we're getting that re- international recognition. I think really you've got to just sort of. I know it's the old cliche, but you've got to go on a week-to-week basis. Um, you know, we've got we can only focus on one thing, and we can only perform this week. We can't really worry about who's coming after it, um, and that's the way you've got to approach it. Approach it. If you start looking too far ahead, you get ahead of yourself, and you, you're thinking about things that you can't control at that moment.
1: Uh, Gareth, the I looked at the uh, squad that Exeter put out the 23, and I think it's. The strongest I've I've seen from you. Would you would you comment on that?
4: Yeah, we, we've definitely got a very good squad this year. Um, obviously, a lot of the guys have. We're coming off the back of a very successful season. Um, we haven't had a lot of turnover. In fact, we had a few. I think we've only had a handful of guys, and they were sort of retiring. Uh, I think Jeff Parling moved on to a different different club, but most of the guys are still here. Um, they've had another year's experience playing the Premiership. Um, and obviously we're in the Premiership now, and with a lot of young fellows who have now tasted that as well, which is great for the club. And we've added in a couple of couple of guys as well, like the likes of Nick White coming in, and you know they're are adding a bit of international experience. But it's not something we've ever really done. We've never really turned over a lot of guys, and we try to keep uh, continuity as much as possible. So hopefully it'll stand us in good stead going forward this season.
1: Well, Gareth, um, you you've got your wish for the next game. You back at home. Sandy Park, can wish you all the best uh, for the forthcoming season and hopefully we'll chat to you uh, again uh, without uh, too much delay.
4: Yes, yeah, thanks very much, guys. All
0: the best.
1: Interesting. Um, I mean, you played in a side that won continually, actually, time after time. It is actually slightly... It's a different challenge to carry on doing that. I think it's mainly self generated your own standards as you know people are going to come after you but they 're going to come after you you know game by game anyway, I think you just really got to to, to keep focused and demand the most exacting standards of
2: yourself personally uh, and as a squad yeah I mean the pressure is on um, you do try and approach it as a new season but Everyone is coming at you and everyone is watching your performance in a lot of detail. But their first game against Gloucester at Gloucester's home, so you've played there before, the the pressure is going to be um, at a different level and to come away with a win is never easy. Mm -hmm. Um, But for Exeter, you do expect them to get better. You do expect them to sort of build up their performance as the the season goes on. But it'll be interesting once the internationals really do start kicking off and when people start losing uh, individuals from their squad. Well, Gareth um, and Exeter have got London
1: Irish. It was a deserved, uh, fully deserved win against uh, Quinns. I've got a question from uh, David Rowe. Any thoughts on uh, Marcus Smith's debut and potential? This is the 18-year-old who's just got his A-levels um, from Brighton College. And, um, you know, well, he had to come off because of a... It wasn't a late tackle, it was a hard tackle. Um, and it was an introduction to uh, the full rigours of uh, the Premiership game. He's keeping out at the moment uh, Dimitri Katakoulis and Tim Swill. Uh, I don't like to uh, go over the top with the young players um, because they will inevitably make mistakes. There's nothing you can do about that. Uh, but in terms of potential, what do you think?
2: I think he was all right. I mean, obviously, I was watching the the, uh, the TV and um everyone was raving about him, so I was quite intrigued to see how to see how he would do. And he did okay. Um, you know, he's a player of potential. I remember when Itoji came onto the scene and no one talked about him, and I was one of the people who was like, watch out for this guy, he is yeah. impressive. And you're right, you can't you can't give them too much praise until they've done something um over a period of a season before you can really go, That's a really quality um athlete.
1: I tell you the difference though between say... Uh, Itoji and uh, Marcus Smith is simply this. You know, Itoji is in the pack and can make a big difference straight away in the set and in and around the breakdowns above you. And Marcus Smith is waiting for the quality of ball that his forwards give him. He can do nothing about the fact that Quinn's actually, you know, got turned over basically up front because, and you know, when you're on the back foot, it's much more difficult. When he's on the front foot and everything is going fine, provided he can play flat and he's got a good hands, which I, I think we've established, he, he does, he'll be a, a lot more impressive. So. Uh, we, his position is dependent very much on the uh, the efforts of the forwards and the man inside him.
2: Yeah, I mean, and also if you're an opposition flanker, you'd be going right for him to put him under pressure and that's what um, London Irish did. And But you think about Marcus Smith, he has got some of the best mentors around him. I mean, Nick Evans is there and obviously a quality fly half, uh, obviously attacking coach now. Um, and that's only going to help Marcus Smith get better. But you do think he's only going to be a good player over this season if his forwards are going forward and he's getting good quality ball to play with. But he's got Danny Kerr as well on his That's you know true. his inside, which makes a big difference.
1: And um, what about London Irish? who said it's a deserved win. They were very physical, the like, cowboys in the back row especially, and they you know managed to uh, stifle uh, Quinns and Topsiogio uh, recovering not not recovering form, but showing you know exactly what he is capable of doing. They didn't look like a newly promoted
2: side. No, they look like... um, Obviously, they've only been out for a season now and uh, they came back and um, to see Ojo uh, get back onto the scoreboard was was brilliant and just to really kind of see how they were playing. They were playing with pure level of attacking flair. Um, They they really did take the game to to Harlequins and that's what you want to see from a side that gets newly promoted. I'm just excited to see a side really wanting to play and... um, to see them win as well was, was brilliant.
1: First week there have been some surprises, but second week when you've got London Irish going to Exeter and um, Worcester hosting Wasps you'll get a bit more of an indication uh, about what uh, teams can do. I'm really I'm really interested though in how Northampton come back because that performance is a sort of performance that get coaches sacked and it's not a new thing with Northampton, they've had... I think they've been indifferent in the past. I know, I know Jim Mallinder quite well. He was the same school as me. And I just wonder... Whether it's the uh, the squad, whether it's the coaching, and so on, or whether we're making too much of this, and they will bounce back, and we will see in the East Midlands derby, won't we? Yeah,
2: it's going to be a, it's a it's going to be a classic of a match, and uh, Northampton are back at home uh, where they play some of their best rugby at Franklin's Gardens, um, but to play against Saracens at Twickenham. Saracens can handle that pressure, uh, but Saracens didn't even have all of their best players back. Uh, it just kind of highlights how good they are as a team. But for Northampton, I mean, when we talk about forwards being quite key in any team, for Saracens, their forwards won the ball, they turned over a lot of good ball, and they gave uh, Saracens' backline ball to play with, and you know, Scott Brits was, uh, was impressive uh, for that game. Well, I'll answer, answer this question from David Louis: Is uh, Scott Brits
1: the best overseas player?
2: You know, last season I probably wouldn't have said so because there's lots of other people like Kurtley Bill, Lou Picamore, but this season he's 36 years old and he still looks like he's fully fresh <laughs> and he could keep he could run some of those young guys around the park. And he cut some amazing lines. He set up uh, or assisted in quite a few of those tries scored uh, on the weekend Um, and he still looked fresh-faced at the end of it. He's always got a smile on his face. I just thoroughly love watching him play. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. In terms of ever...
1: Um, uh, Nick Evans would come close, I think, um, as as a star in port, but he's in the you know he's in the top few, isn't he?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's so many overseas players we've had come over and play in our Premiership who've been. You know, mighty impressive. Uh, showed their talent, um, but I think I have to look at, at Brits and just think again. He's such a mature man, and he's still going. He plays like he's 24 years old and scores tries as well as sets them up, and that's what you want from any player who comes into your side. And he's been at Saracens for a while now, so he's you know he's part of the furniture.
1: Arising uh, out of the, that, um, they've got a question from. Uh... Julian Bremer saying, is it time for Dylan Hartley to step aside? Now, obviously, he was under pressure because they got rolled up front. Um, I've spoken to Eddie Jones several times about what Dylan Hartley brings to the England squad. And there are people like Jamie George who you know, played well on the Lions. And Eddie Jones said to me that we don't see what he puts in to the squad on a day-to-day basis when they're together we don't see the standards he sets and demands of other people and the influence he has. Bearing in mind that there's obviously something powerful there, at what point do you think you have to take that uh, into account and also um, the actual form? Is that going to be enough leading up to a World Cup or do you have to have someone who is on absolutely top form and, and merits his starting place, uh, whatever other uh, competition he has?
2: Look, Northampton didn't have a good game against Saracen's full stop and um, and he's on the brunt of that being captain and obviously the forwards didn't perform. Um, Tom Wood had a really good game, but other than that, the rest didn't perform uh, against Saracen. So I think it's a bit of a harsh call with Din Hartley. Look, I'm I'm a, a big fan of uh, Jamie George and he's going to be an interesting one seeing how he progressed this season. Obviously was a superstar uh, during the Lions tour. Dylan Hartley, I, from what, I mean, I've spoken to him as well, and he's a really good guy. But I think one thing which people do not really, I guess, appreciate with him is the fact that he is a good leader and players listen to him. And that's what you need uh, in a side that, that is going forward in particular. When they're going backwards, I mean, that's the stuff we don't really see a lot of, especially when Northampton aren't winning. You know, when That's when you expect your leaders to probably stand up. Well, one thing Eddie Jones does have the luxury of,
1: because of the way the game is uh, now played, and it's a, very much a squad on the day. And almost invariably, you are having hookers have, you both hookers get on. There's flexibility to keep him there, and and you know chop and change just depending on when you want to make a substitution. So that augurs well for him. Let's have a switch of uh, tournaments because the. Well, what was a Pro 12 is now a Pro 14, and uh, you've got the introduction of two South African sides. Let me just explain to people what is now happening. You've got two conferences, um, seven teams. They play each other home and away. Then they play the teams in the other conference just once, and then they go into the playoffs. The Southern Kings and the Cheetahs They're uh, playing two games uh, away from home, and then they have the home games. Both of them had a bit of a hammering, actually. Scarlet's 57, Southern Kings 10, Ulster 42, Cheetahs 19. Now, I'm pleased to say we can speak to someone who comes on this uh, show and podcast quite often because uh, he's a quality analyst. We've got Tinas Delport, the former gloucester Worcester wing, South African international. Uh, Tinas, hello.
0: Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Hi, Maggie.
1: Hey. This, i tell you what, it looked to me like some of the kings and cheetahs uh conti- you know continued their form of um, you know of super rugby where they don't do very well away from home but you have to wait to see what they can do uh, when they're on their own patch
0: yeah brian as you rightly mentioned it's a new new competition new format um i think that both the kings and cheetahs thought it's probably only 40 minutes they have to play now and uh, not still the full 80 minutes with the new competition but um you know um if you look at the scoreboard, then it, it certainly was a hammering on both sides. But if you have to take into context the preparation time these teams have had um, leading into this competition and, and the new format, it's, it's been very, you know, very short. The, the Kings, the Southern Kings, only had two weeks to prepare. They, two weeks ago, they, they haven't even met everyone that's going to be involved, they haven't had any games. Leading up to this tournament, and then they throw them in away against the defending champions. So you know, not an easy start. The the cheetos on the other hand has been playing a bit of um, curry cup, um, so they've they've actually been having to split their squads where they've got to now focus on two tournaments uh, on in two different hemispheres. So, um, but that's you know that is the case with uh, a new tournament that's um, you know that's been been put in place, and it's going to take a season or so for for these sides to, to really entrench themselves and, and get more competitive. Um, I'm, I'm foreseeing come January, February time where the Kings, Southern Kings, will probably have a few more players come in after the Curry Cup has finished in South Africa, probably from a couple of different franchises, that they'll certainly be much stronger and, and a lot more competitive, especially at home.
1: Well, one of the things to mention in their defence is the fact that because they um, you know were excluded uh, from the uh, super rugby, they lost a lot of players, so you know they're gonna have to have at least one season where they're playing with limited resources and try and you know reinforce their squads next year and that'll be easier for them but when they come to the home games how much do you th- how many problems um, do you think teams will have traveling to South Africa? Now, obviously, the time zone's you know, much better, so, but you've still got a, you know, a, a long flight uh, and uh, presumably they're going to leave enough time to, to get acclimatized. What sort of advantage do you think that will bring to the, uh, the South African
0: sides? Well, I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge, really, I mean, as you mentioned there, there's no real big time difference, which is a fantastic benefit. It's an overnight flight, so you get on the plane in London, and you, um, you overnight and, and 6, 7 o'clock, uh, you're in Johannesburg or in Cape Town. So um, that's not too much uh, a travel factor in terms of the fatigue. The, the big challenge really is going to be the fact that you're going to go from winter to summer mm-hmm. um, overnight. You, um, were you going to play here in you know, very cold, wet, muddy conditions, um, and then you fly over there, and then and the following week you you're going to have to play in 30, 30 odd degrees of, of sunshine. So, and on hard pitches. So I think that's going to be um, the big the big challenge that teams will have have to overcome uh, in terms of the style of rugby that's going to be played, the conditions it's going to be played under. But I I I'm very excited about this tournament. I'm very excited to see South African sides in a Northern Hemisphere. Based competition, it's. Um, I think it's it's a, a fantastic coup by South African rugby to be involved uh, in the Northern Hemisphere on you know several different motivations on the back of that. In terms of player development, I think it's fantastic for both sets um, of of, um, of hemispheres. Uh, in terms of getting exposed to the travel factor, getting exposed to different playing styles, having to adapt very quickly. Um, and it's, it can only help and strengthen um, player development. So very excited to see these teams being, uh, in, being part of this new competition, although it's going to take definitely a season or so for them, um, and certainly for the Southern Kings to just adapt and form their new squad.
2: Uh, teams, I guess you kind of answered my question there, but um, I was going to ask how do you think these two teams being added to the Pro 14 is going to benefit South African rugby? Do you think this is going to improve the national side going forward? I certainly
0: think so, Maggie. Um, the, the big challenge we have is keeping a lot of our players in South Africa. So a lot of players that have um, played Super Rugby have now gone off to Japan or has come over to the Northern Hemisphere to, to further their playing careers over here. A lot of the players will have um, Super Rugby, then they should off to Japan, and then they come back for Super Rugby. And this will give an opportunity for some of those experienced players to stay in the country and be exposed to a different, um, a, a different competition. Um, that hopefully will mean that a, a, a larger player base will stay in South Africa and will get that experience. You'll also look at a, probably a couple of Super Rugby players that's been uh, in Super Rugby for four, five, six years and are now looking to um, get, themselves, you know, get themselves a different experience. And just the different um, playing conditions, the different styles of play over here, um, speaking to the Kings boys after their match, um, the, the the aggressive contest for possession at the breakdown was something that they're not quite used to um, in the Super Rugby. In the Super Rugby, a lot of time you'll, you'll have the tackle and uh, the defenders will be back on their feet forming in the line. Over here, every every tackle, there's a contest for possession. So that's something they, they really need to um, get to grips very quickly. Um, the defensive systems are a lot better organized, probably a lot more aggressive. We saw the Lions um, unnerving New Zealand, the All Blacks, Uh, in the recent Lions tour. So in terms of player development, in terms of getting players exposed to these conditions, I think it's going to be just strengthening um, South African rugby. South African rugby over the last three, four seasons uh, come the autumn, internationals have been struggling um, to deal with that pressure uh, the Northern Hemisphere sides are, are, are putting on them. So these players can now get used to the conditions and also get used to that pressure that's been put on in terms of the set phases and especially on the, on the uh, defensive organization. So definitely this can, these guys can grow, and hopefully we'll see a lot more of the South African or the experienced Springboks, Um, going back there and playing in this composition.
2: Well, I'd love to get your take on this as well. Um, How has the Pro 14 been received in South Africa? Do they see it as a a real positive move or do they see it as a step backwards?
0: No, massively positive. Um, You know, the the South African Rugby Union CEO, um, once this was announced, um, said that they're aiming for four South African sides in Super Rugby and potentially four South African sides in a European competition. So they, you know, they very much bought into that. They're very excited. Speaking to the players and the coaches involved, they're very excited to be part of something new. Um, it, sometimes, and definitely Super Rugby, um, has become a little bit stale Uh, You can see the fact that they've cut back these sides because they want to freshen up the competition. And this is great to keep rugby moving, keep the interest moving, the commercial interest, but most importantly, the supporters' interest, to to go out and support. It's fantastic to see some South African sides here, especially for those South Africans living over here in the UK um, and in Ireland. They now um, have the opportunity to go see some of their hometown heroes play locally. So fantastic uh, for them that, that the Pro 14 has taken the shape that it is. Tina, the so challenge for that
1: particular competition is different from the Premiership, where you've got an established product, you've got big commercial backing, and basically they're just asking, you know, how much money are you going to give us? Uh, and they've got the audience to justify that uh, to sponsors. You know, The Pro 12, before, because of the smaller nations that make it up, have not been able to generate as much revenue, and therefore they've had to be flexible. But. That means that they can be experimental. This is part of it. Can you foresee, for example, you know, the, the game in Georgia is getting big. The game in Germany is getting big. Can you foresee in the next few years them actually starting to, uh, not? I don't mean spread the word in a sense, but, but tapping into those markets as a legitimate ploy to, to expand the game alongside them expanding that tournament?
0: No, I certainly agree. the, the fact that this um, new Pro 14 um, system and, and setup has been created relatively quickly, um, you know, we, we don't know what what was happening behind the scenes for months leading into this, but it certainly was a very quick turnaround to uh, to increase the participation. I was sitting next to Ken Owens yesterday, and he was he was holding the Pro 14 trophy. You know, so they've already <laughs> changed the trophy, and you know, they changed their, all the names and stuff. So. It certainly showed that the Pro 14, uh, they they thinking progressively, they thinking ahead. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see one or two American franchises potentially mm. getting involved. As you mentioned, Georgia, Germany, um, they have the opportunity to tap in because they can, as you mentioned, can move around, can experiment. And for the survival of and the competitiveness of the Welsh, the Scottish, the Irish clubs, the, the, the Italian clubs, they need to expand into these new markets um, because, you know, it is a financially driven game at the moment. It's a broadcasting game. Which broadcaster, uh, broadcasters and sponsors are willing to pay uh, the pounds uh, to, um, you know, to, to run the tournament? So they, they're very active. They're very proactive. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I've, I can foresee in the next four or five years this Pro 14 just growing even more.
1: Well, Titus, I, I think we have to wait until the uh, South African sides have played at home to see how they, um, you know, they will perform and see how the teams are progressing. But uh, when they've done that, please come back and give us your view, will you?
0: No, certainly, do Brian. I'll uh, keep my eyes very closely on the on the new Pro 14 and the South African performances and. Hopefully, as you mentioned, they'll be a little bit more competitive at home. I'm looking forward to, to see them against the, um, especially the Italian sides. and Probably some of the, the weaker Welsh regions, you know, Cardiff Blues are struggling, Newport Dragons. Um, those could be teams these guys will be targeting, especially then um, when the international season comes in. Um, and some of these guys will be probably a little bit more fatigued and uh, more injury prone towards the end of the season.
1: Maggie, new uh, head injury assessment rules. They've got to stay off for 10 minutes no matter what happens. But the interesting uh, development is the saliva test which uh, is being uh, touted as being a definitive answer to this because the, uh, it's supposed to work this way. When uh, you get a concussion the chemical composition of the saliva changes and if that is an accurate indicator it should take a lot of the guesswork out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to say the game has is- is getting safer i think what's good is that we're starting to see um these protocols be put in place and you know the whole once they're off for 10 minutes they or they have to be off for 10 minutes to ensure they assess appropriately um and we're seeing less more well, big concussions now um you know we'll see the way people tackle has to be uh, significantly safer now and not around the head and and neck um and i think it, you know in a day having a a saliva test sounds interesting. Um, I'll be intrigued to know how, how that will be um, administrated. Because, uh, again, how long... I'll tell you what you, you need to do. They need to be very sure that that's a definitive answer.
1: Because, obviously, research and uh, tracking of these things takes time to build up a body of evidence. And what you can't do on the first few tests is say, that's the panacea, we've got it right, and then find out several years later when you've accumulated the results that actually it's not as accurate as you thought and you've put at risk a lot of players you know, who who passed because of that. So I'm sure that they will, but you, know, you just urge caution on that particular one. Right, time to... Switch codes because the Rugby League season is nearly there. We uh, are getting closer to seeing who will be in the playoffs. Already two teams are there, but we're able to speak to the uh, coach of one of the teams that's still not quite made it, but probably will do. I'm pleased to say we can speak to uh, Lee Radford, um, back-to-back Challenge Cup winning coach with Hull FC. Uh, Lee, hello.
3: Good evening, Brian.
1: Um, are you a bit hacked off that you had to go into such important games in the playoff? Uh, you know, a relatively short time after you won the the cup.
3: Yeah, I think um, I just think a little bit of common sense could, could have been used in terms of, in terms of scheduling. You know, we picked up um, four or five soft tissue injuries mm-hmm. um, on Thursday, which you know when. I'm trying to be as professional as I can here, but when you spend the Saturday night celebrating and the Sunday night celebrating, mm. the Monday on a parade, um, you know it's inevitable that 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 is going to happen at some stage. So, um, you know, I thought the effort that that the players turned up with was, you know, surpassed probably what I was expecting. So, that's a real credit to them. But yeah, just um, you know, if the game could have been put back 48, 72 hours, it um, it would have, have even the competition out a little bit better, mm. I think.
1: Well, you've got uh, a situation where... I think we've got three games
3: left. That's right, yes. Yeah, so um, Wigan, yeah. Wakefield and Castleford.
1: And, uh, well, Tigers and uh, Rhinos are, are there. Uh, there's a rafter, well, the rafter team underneath. Uh, you're in pole position being one point uh, in front of Wakefield. But if, if you go through, and uh, let's hope uh, for your sake you do, who do you think will join you?
3: I honestly, I honestly don't know. I think, you know, i have never write Wigan off, um, but I, but I think if you look at St Helens, I think out of the run they've, you know, on paper they've probably got the easiest run on paper. I know that doesn't stand stand for a great deal, but um, I think I think Thursday night's fixture between Wakefield and St Helens will will have massive implications, obviously on on the t- on one of those teams that gets there. So, um, you know, for us personally, we can Wigan off on on Friday. And then Wakefield the week after, I think that'll be enough to secure a spot. So, obviously, that's not what we're striving for.
1: And then at the other end, you've got the qualifiers. It seems to me that actually, I mean, this should happen, really. The teams who are trying to come up have a great deal of difficulty against uh, sides that are better financed and, and probably playing week in, week out, a higher standard. Uh, would you like to see your, uh, well, very near neighbours, Hulk KR, do it?
3: Oh, certainly, yeah. You know, we, we need them up there. We're, you know, they're like, um, they're like a, a little brother who gets on your nerves. You know, <laughs> you, you, yeah, yeah. And, you know they're frustrated. All the supporters frustrate frustrated to hell sometimes. But, you know, we need them financially for the Derby game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the, the Magic Weekend is, is a spectacle in itself when, when, we, when we're when tied up against them. So, you know, we, we love to hate them, but we, we definitely want them back in the competition.
1: And who's in the biggest danger of, uh, of having to uh, take the drop? Do you reckon?
3: Yeah, I, don't, I, I honestly don't know. I, the one twenty-four nil that weekend, but the two games that i would watched them prior, I, I thought Catalan, you know, really looked like they're struggling. And, and it's ironic, you know, you have a look at the roster, the playing roster that they've gotten, the cap that they've spent. Um, and, and having said that, you know, looking at Warrington, probably shouldn't be in those eights either. It's, um, it's been intriguing, and, and I think. You know, obviously, the, there is a gulf in in the in the quality of the sides from Warrington to Featherston, but I think all of them teams today have, have given a real good account of themselves, and you know, a couple of them semi-professional teams as well. When it comes to the
1: uh, the, uh, the 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 playoffs um, in Super League, is it first against third and second fourth?
3: That's right. Yeah, first v fourth, second v third. Uh,
1: given that Castleford are probably going to get the uh, the top spot and the the strength are they, uh, that they've shown thus far, uh, they must be the team to beat. Surely.
3: Um, yeah, I think I think if you look at the results they've had, but you know we've we knocked them off in a playoff game um, this year and pushed them really close when we went to their place as well. You know, last play of the game, it, it, it went down to so. Yeah. We've not won out like, headingly in in ten years, so that, that's that's a tricky one as well. But but touch wood this year when we played knockout footy. You know, we've beat whatever's been in front of us, and that's you know that's certainly what we'll be we'll be drawing all our energy to. Do you think uh, you'll be able to
1: manage your squad? to do you avoid the end of season? People are struggling, aren't they? Everyone's carrying knocks and so on. How much uh, influence does uh, the fitness of the ver- relative squads um, have on on their well, whether they do it or not?
3: I think it's huge. Yeah, I think um, you know probably the, the biggest advertisement for that this year would probably be Wigan. I think if you look at the injuries that they've they've had during the year, you know, I think at some points ten and eleven blocks missing, um, you know, struggling throughout the season. But you know, it's no coincidence they're starting to get the troops back now over the over the last month. They've got to a Challenge Cup final and they're obviously knocking on the door for fourth. So having you know, it does not matter what coach you are, you have got ten blocks missing out of in yeah. effectively a, a 25 man squad. You you know you you're bringing young kids in that probably aren't ready for this level of football yet and that's difficult
1: Lee, thank you very much mate I wish you all the best in the remaining games come back and talk to us if you manage to do it oh actually come back and talk to us anyway Happy days Maggie, I've got a, another couple of questions I want to, uh, to deal with you know, a very simple one here from
2: Kevin T can anyone stop Saris? Oh, on the performance on what we saw on Saturday, I think it's going to be very hard to, to do so. They are, um, like I said, they performed really well without some of their big key stars. Owen Farrell wasn't there. You know, He's obviously a, a key individual. But it was interesting to see you know, Toji back playing, Cruz back playing, all those key players who are still in the fold. Um, and I think with Saracens, that what they have is that strength in depth. They rotate players which means that they're able to last the whole season. Um, but their next game is against Bath, out at the rec, which will be interesting to see how they perform. And seeing Bath, how they did against Leicester, haven't beaten Leicester at Welford Road since 2003, yep. uh, I think that's going to be quite an interesting competition between both of them too. And uh, Matthew Tebbett has asked, did you
1: see a straight put-in over the weekend? Uh, this relates to... Uh, I'm sure you know lots about this. But this relates to the new uh, law trials in relation to the scrum. And quite simply, um, the scrum half is allowed to stand square, but he's allowed to have his left shoulder in contact with the uh, middle line, which means effectively he's uh, a yard closer to his own side of the scrum. The ball is then supposed to be put in straight, uh, and then it's supposed to be struck by one of the front row players before it's actually live. Now, when this was actually adhered to, and I did see straight put-ins according to the uh, new trial laws, and there was a proper strike. The ball got back to the number eight quickly and it was there to play. And we had far fewer resets. We had far fewer collapses.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I have to watch watching this weekend. We have seen, um, like I said, no restarts really uh, or fewer of them. Uh, and it's been quick and I guess these rules have been brought in to ensure there's fair contest, and the game is made much more simple to to referee and as well as a player to be able to play in it. Um, uh, look, watching it, I feel like it's it's actually improved the way scrums are played now. Um, but I get, look, I'm not in the front row, and I probably wouldn't, I, you know, might contest that and feel like the ball's are not going to be being put in straight. But watching well, this it as is, a spectator... But this, spectator is, but this is the point, and I've only been saying this for 10 years, but um,
1: the fact is that because you've got a strike and it's mandated, it's a competition, again, with two packs where the opposition have the option to strike or shove, so you've either got strike against strike or shove against strike, and it's a balance. But the fact is that if the referees, and this is what I'm really afraid of, start to resile from their commitment to referee this properly, and we go back to allowing Scrum halves, even though they've now got an advantage... To just simply put the ball into the second row, the other side will stop uh, even thinking about a strike. And actually, the put-in side, if they get away with it, will think if I don't actually have to strike, even though the law says I do, I'm not going to. Mm. Do you think if- that's
2: going to happen? Then do you think that? I am afraid of
1: that because that's what happened progressively. That's we. That's why we got into this mess. And if that happens and it becomes shove against shove, which is inherently unstable, we'll have the same problems. Yeah, I guess teams will get more smart about it. And the law is, as it's now the trial law, is that uh, you know, there has to be a strike by one of the uh, front row players. Now, it's, it's obviously going to be the hooker. That's supposed to be his job. But what I can see is referees accepting this, saying, actually, if, if the ball hits uh, the hooker's foot, one or the other, then that's fine because it's been played by someone in the front row. Now, that's not a strike. A strike, to me, denotes an active movement to hook the ball back. It, if they wanted it to reflect that particular um, set of circumstances, they could have worded the trial laws. They could have said, if a ball comes into contact with a front row's foot, which could be stationary, then that's fine. They didn't say that because they wanted to make it a hook. If you do that, what will happen is... Hookers won't move the feet. They'll get in a, they'll yet again in a pushing position, and we'll have the, we're back to the same thing. It, the essential part of this for referees to note is that it's the strike and having to do that that creates a quick ball. It creates a good ball because it's hooked properly. Once you go back to a pushing competition, you'll just get the same problems. And we are back in the same thing with more resets, more collapses. If you reward the, the successful hook and make people do that, then they will do that and they'll get better and better and better at it. We'll get quicker ball and we'll have fewer problems. And the onus on the referees is absolute now because they've been given a get-out from the problems they created in the first place. And if they don't do this one, they will be solely responsible for it being a disaster. And the thing is this, if it comes down to a situation where we have the problems because they're not refereeing, I can foresee the next step by World Rugby and the lawmakers Doing something really drastic with the scrum and saying, actually, let's just shove it in the you know, just shove it in the back row, and we'll get on with it. And then you've got a whole new set of problems, with with you know in terms of the makeup of players, the way that players physically are, you, know, you can see in rugby league. The fact is that if you're 15 stone and about six foot, you can play any position in the scrum, right. uh, because that's the uh, uniformity. That's what you need to run around. And people like Jason Leonard, people like me, and other people, th- there will be no. Uh, where for, for for players who are our physiques with our limited or or, or other talents to go? So did you welcome this this new law, or do you see it as if you know what? Manage. If it if it had been refereed properly, you would never have had to have this. But now it's being done. It's better than it was, and at least the ball is getting back into play. And sides are now using these to restart an attack. Whereas before, you know, you remember three four years ago, every single scrum was a chance for a penalty, and everyone only only did that. Uh, You know, so, yes, it is a move forward. I don't think it should have been necessary, but now we've got it. For God's sake, let's do it properly to these laws. And referees and officials know that, and they should understand, you know, the mechanics and the causation in this and where it will go. That's very nearly the end of the show. Maggie, just before we go, I'd like to mention Newcastle and Dean Richards because they have steadily built... It's a difficult area in which to, to grow the game because of the uh, ubiquity of football in that area. And nevertheless, Dean Richards is, is doing what he did at Quinn's and he's managing to steadily build a squad which is stronger and playing more attractive uh, rugby. What do you think is a realistic target for Newcastle this year?
2: I'd like to think they'll finish somewhere in the top eight, for sure. Um, I mean, they're they're a side which have some very exciting players. Um, You know, also the way they put in a performance against Worcester. Worcester, to be fair, were were sort of a a victim of their own sort of mistakes with a lot of poor discipline um, and penalties going against them. Um, But Newcastle have a side which potentially could, if not top six you know but I'm, I feel like I'm pushing it there uh, they're a side which are I think they should be strong. aiming
1: for top six and they should be disappointed you know if they if they if they don't get there if they scrap properly mm. you've been listening to Brian Moore's Fall Contact in association with The Telegraph thank you for listening and thank you to my co-host and World Cup winner Maggie Alfonsi and this week's producer Teo Papula remember please subscribe to the podcast it's completely free and then you'll never miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard, and if you don't like what you've heard, actually, frankly, please leave a review. We'll be back next week. So for now, it's goodbye.
4: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.